This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. I can't even imagine what it feels like not knowing what happened to this kid. And they've had to live with this, and mom and dad had to take it to their grave. On the last episode of True Crime Chronicles. There's so many different stories pertaining to this case. It almost got to the point you didn't know what to believe anymore. All we, all we knew was our youngest brother was dead, and we didn't know why. Kevin Sova's little brother, Kurt Sova, was 17 years old in 1981 when he walked out of a party and vanished from a Cleveland, Ohio suburb. Five days later, his body was found in a ravine in an area where his friends and family had already searched in the days following his disappearance. But he'd only been dead for about a day or so. So what happened between the time he went missing and the time he was found? In 1981, the coroner determined his death was instantaneous physiological death. There was still 0.11 blood alcohol content in his system, and there weren't any signs of trauma. So what really happened to Kurt Sova? To this day, it remains a mystery. And that's what Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy and his alma mater, Tiffin University, hoped to uncover nearly four decades later. The case first grabbed his attention a few years back. In 2016, we moved into a new police facility. And we transferred all of our evidence from our old facility to our new. And we had many, many cases over the years that had uh, basically just set dormant or just like sex crimes or whatever that were required to sustain this evidence. And so uh, we did have this box and it said sofa case on it and it got moved from one to the other. Fast forward to 2018, one of the chief's colleagues at Tiffin University, where he teaches also, reaches out to him. One thing led to another. We began having discussions about reopening it and so uh, whenever you go to open up a cold case you got to look at you know what's the solvability factor in this and you know what can you um, you know how much resources are you going to have to spend on this during this time he starts looking through the box labeled Sova case and he and Tiffin University criminal justice professor Mike Lewis come to a conclusion you know hey there's some substance to this and there's you know, an opportunity for us here to take a a fresh look at it. Lewis knows it can take someone new to the case to reignite an old investigation. While witnesses can help solve a case, the former police officer and detective also knows that time can be the enemy when it comes to witness statements. There were many living witnesses still there, um, still around, but there's some discrepancies and inconsistencies, I thought, uh, between an initial... Witness statements, um, a poly- subsequent polygraph ten years later, uh, and different things like that. that I think it can be re, you know, reevaluated. Um, also, a few people that were initially identified as, you know, potential suspects or or had some possible thought of having something to do, you know, with the death of Kurt. Um, you know, were were really not charged. They weren't followed up with. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting, um, you know, that there's there's some people out there that may may still have some answers. Um, and I think probably the most important part of the case. For the next six months, he's working with a small group of his criminology and forensic students 
from the school located in Tiffin, Ohio, in hopes of adding some fresh eyes and new digital age perspective to the case. They're also, which I thought was really, again, really interesting, is they're monitoring um, social media pages. You know, um, we dedicated a, uh, a tip line, uh, a Facebook page, of course, and um, an email that, you know, they can get tips. So I have two students that were specifically, um, you know, designed that their interest is, um, you know, uh, social media. So they're, um, you know, kind of monitoring uh, that and and helping with that. My thought process was really to incorporate, you know, the, the, the brightest uh, and the best of these criminal justice students to look at this case, again, from a a different perspective, a 21st century perspective with a fresh set of eyes and a clear lens. His students will bring fresh eyes as they sift through evidence and boxes of documents, analyzing what witnesses saw back then. During this time, they're going to be reviewing documents, evidence, um, you know, looking at the autopsy report, looking at the, the initial tip lines, looking at, you know, um, witnesses that did polygraphs. Um, and just sifting through this, you know, copious amounts of uh, what I what I looked at was kind of unorganized um, information. But to solve Kurt's case, the professor agrees with the chief. It's going to take someone coming forward. I think it's going to come probably down to somebody that knows something that's going to pick up the phone and, and call. Um, again, of course, you know, they always say, you know, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you can believe somebody, but always verify, right, um, the story or the situation. But I think it's going to come down to that. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of, um, you know, biological evidence. There's not the DNA that we can test. There's not different things al- along those lines. So it's going to have to, you know, again, kind of putting putting together that jigsaw puzzle. You know, there's there's pieces missing, but it's coming together. They're hoping to find a few of those missing puzzle pieces from Kurt's family. A few years back, when Kurt's mother, Dorothy Sova, died, his brother Kevin found something. There were boxes boxes of information. Kevin handed over those boxes of his mom's investigation spanning decades to the Newburgh Heights Police Department. She never let go of her son's death or finding out what happened to him. Now, that responsibility lies with the sole surviving Sova. It's almost like I'm supposed to step in mom's shoes and follow this through. And here we are. And, you know, are we on the verge of finding out what really happened to Kurt? I hope so. The chief started digging into those boxes that Kurt's mother, Dorothy Sova, had compiled for more than 30 years, finding that his police department didn't do much investigating back then. Basically, it was told to the police department there's no crime. And so they, the police department just didn't really do much of an investigation at all. And they did a little bit, but not anywhere near what they should have done on it. Uh, It basically sat dormant. And and so, you know, the the family, Kurt's mom, he really stayed on top of it, or she really stayed on top of it, but, um, you know, just never was given the answers. And um, going through all the information that the brother brought in for us, I mean, she kept very detailed notes. I mean, she was a hell of an investigator. And talk to this person and, you know, date and time and, you know, and all this information and she was passing that on to the police department, but they just never really ran with much. And, you know, it, it's hard to say now, almost 40 years later, if, if that was 
would have been helpful to have or not, you know. Um, you know, we can only surmise uh, if they would have done a little bit better job on it. So that's kind of some of the twists and turns of the case. But sometimes, the chief says, the family can be put on the back burner. And when I say that, I don't mean like it by an intentional means, but um, it, it, it's clear and it's very clear. Having gone through, and I, I, I went through this box with a fine tooth comb and I read every word. You know, letter every word of every sentence um, that Mrs. Silver wrote down. And, uh, you know, this poor lady just didn't get the diligence. And in a criminal investigation, when you turn over every stone and you've reached that very last one and you've reached an impasse, or, you know, if we run into a case where we know who did it, we just can't prove it. Those cases happen. Um, at least we've done everything that we could possibly do. But in this case, we didn't do everything we could possibly do. And uh, I wasn't with the department at the time. I was in high school. So, but in looking back at it, that was one of the reasons is because, you know, the victim's family never got justice. Now, we may be, go through this whole entire thing and come up empty handed. But at least if we do, we can say that we gave it our very best. And that's what we're doing. But for now, it's time for him to look at all those twists and turns in the case and see what they have and what they don't have. In many cold cases, you look at science, like, for example, DNA. Um, if, is there going to be any DNA, you know, like an unsolved sex crime or uh, an unsolved murder or something like that? You're going to look at, you know, what, what kind of DNA is, uh, is available to possibly help get you a suspect. And in this particular case, it's really not at the forefront for us. But what is at the forefront is, you know, so this kid leaves a party on a Friday night. He's 17 years old. What was he doing for those five days? If the coroner's saying he's been dead for 24 to 36 hours. So that's like a day to a day and a half. And he was found you know, at about 5.30 at night. And so that means that you know, where was he at for 72 hours? You know, he never went home to, to, to change his clothes, to eat, you know, to sleep, to do anything else. Kurt wasn't someone who went on drinking benders for days at a time, Chief Majoy says. And he wasn't a loner. So someone knows something. It wasn't like he disappeared into thin air and nobody, you know, would see him for a couple of days. That wasn't him. And so it's, it, it's not... Normal. It's not common. You know, he wasn't abducted. You know, there was no no signs of that. And so, what really stood out is that you know they just didn't get the information and run with it at the time. And you know, just because there was no forced trauma doesn't mean there was a crime. You know, his body was dumped there. But even with the unknowns in the case, the chief is confident. We think that we can solve this. We think that somebody out there knows something. But memories fade, stories change, and people die. Unfortunately, you know, there's been several names that came up um, in, in a subsequent interview done by the Sheriff's Department in 1989. And in that investigation, a number of names came up, but some of those people are already dead. That's the challenge. And time is of the essence now. If we don't act on this, we may never have this opportunity ever again. And so that's kind of what stood out and, 
you know, that's kind of what made us, you know, say, okay, listen, we're going to invest some resources into this. We're not a big police department. And so, you know, I don't have a, a detective bureau of six or eight officers that I can just turn loose on this. I mean, this is myself that 90% of the work that I'm doing is at home after hours on this stuff. And I have one of their officers assigned to it. Uh, we've got our folks and friends at the Crime Stoppers that are helping us. And so, you know, we're doing everything we can just to try and keep up with it today. Uh, but we feel pretty good about it. Majoy, who's been in law enforcement for 30 years and at this department as chief since 2013, says the case wasn't investigated all that thoroughly back in the 80s. But he's talked to the former chief as well as the original detective on the case. He did reach out to the former detective. Um, he went to, to prison for four and a half years on 76 counts of prescription fraud. And, uh, but he also uh, did a concurrent sentence uh, from a federal charge by the FBI for um, civil rights violations. And so, um, you know, he has since done his time uh, and he's actually cooperating with us. And uh, we've interviewed him a couple times um, and we're, we're getting some information from him. Uh, can't divulge a whole lot of it, but what I can say is it's been somewhat helpful. Um, we talked to the former police chief. Uh, the conversation with him was helpful. Um, and so everything is just a piece of that puzzle. But we're still missing that one piece that's really going to help us get there. But I think we're getting closer every day. In this case, we didn't do everything we could possibly do. And uh, I wasn't with the department at the time. I was in high school. So... But in looking back at it, that was one of the reasons is because, you know, the victim's family never got justice. Now, we maybe go through this whole entire thing and come up empty handed. But at least if we do, we can say that we gave it our very best. And that's what we're doing. Today, he's hoping that their very best comes in the form of collaboration with others on the case. Uh, an author by the name of Ken Blanchard, and he's quoted as saying, none of us are as smart as all of us. And so using that concept um, that you know, everybody brings something to the table. And when I teach criminal justice, I teach criminal investigations. And one of the things that I say on the very first day is I ask the students, you know, how many of you ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? And they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. They kind of haphazardly raise their hand. And I said, okay, I said, imagine you're putting together a 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzle. Where do you start at? We start in the corners. Okay, good. Once you get the corners done, then what do you do? Then we start with the sides. Okay, when you're done with the sides, then what? Well, we start working them. I said, okay. I said, imagine a criminal investigation as being a 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzle. Imagine that I were to give you a 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzle where there was 25 pieces missing. Would you still be able to look at that puzzle and tell me what it is? Yeah. Well, that's where a criminal investigation is. Applying that theory to the Sova case, we've got the corners all done, and we've got the sides all done, and now we're starting to work to fill in the middle, and we're seeing a, a better picture here. And next month, he hopes that picture clears up even more when hundreds of citizen detectives will put their heads together. Everyday folks will travel to Chicago for something called CrowdSolve. They'll sift through statements, evidence, and theories trying to crack the case alongside the chief, the professor, and his students, and with the guidance from law enforcement experts. 
it's a case that that is ripe for the solving. Um, it uh, has full involvement of police, uh, family, experts, everything else, and and we just need sort of engaged, passionate people to come and uh, help work through the case file with us. Kevin Balf with Red Seat Ventures heads up CrimeCon, an annual true crime convention and started CrowdSolve as a way for those interested in true crime to try and solve a real case over the course of three days. We're very much about sort of, uh, you know, education um, combined with activism and and advocacy and these sorts of things. And so it was important to us that if we were going to do something with a case um, for a weekend, that we could really make a difference with it. He does acknowledge the potential risk of hurting the investigation with outsiders sorting through open case files, but also says... Everyday citizens bring a unique perspective that could be used to help the case. The fact is of ordinary people who don't do this for a living getting involved in cases has, you know, a little bit of a of a of a poor backstory, right? I mean, a lot of people remember the Boston Marathon bombing as one of the seminal moments where, you know, the redditors of the world were um, out there naming names and providing photos of suspects who turned out to have nothing to do with anything, right? And I think all of us saw the the potential, how this could be used the wrong way. Um, and and to me, and this has happened in multiple cases, and to me, you know, I think it's a little bit, it was a little bit of like, well, let's slow down. Yes, okay, now we all see the really bad things that could happen, but are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? Like, isn't there... It isn't, is it really a hundred percent that way? Or is that, was that the, the wrong, there was no one in charge of that. There was no structure. There was no thought behind it. So, um, while there's a ton of risks and a ton of terrible things that could happen, isn't there also a really powerful use here? Isn't there also an ability to take a case that is really in a Hail Mary territory, you know, maybe a decade plus old, um, bring in, you just smart, passionate, engaged people from all walks of life. And, and, and I know the fresh eyes thing is sort of overused, but that's really what happened in Seattle. You talking about nurses and architects and teachers and engineers and all these folks with varied backgrounds who are looking at evidence in a way that the five professional detectives who had reviewed this, who had reviewed the case we worked on in Seattle, uh, over the last decade, just don't, don't have, right. It's just coming at it from a, a problem from a totally different and unique perspective. Um, the confidentiality and the non-disclosure agreement piece really comes in and is informed by, you know, what I mentioned before of not trying to, not trying to ruin a future investigation. It's important to us that everybody who shows up, A, wants to learn and B, authentically wants to, um, provide justice for this family. It's an investigative approach Chief Majoy had never heard of, so he did some digging of his own into what CrowdSolve really is and if it could add any value to his department's cold case. We're not looking to exploit this. We're not looking for tablet coverage. We're not looking for you know our five minutes of fame or something. We're not looking for any of that. I could care less about that. What I do care about is trying to solve the case. There's a unique perspective that comes to the table here. So um, I, I, I don't have any reservation about CrowdSolve. If I did, I wouldn't be doing it. Um, in, in fact, I think that uh, there's a, a real good likelihood that they can shed some light on some things. And he has no doubt Kurt's case can be solved. I 100% think that this is solvable. When I say solvable, do I do I expect a grand jury indictment to come up on Memorial Day? I, I can't say that I do. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say that we will or we won't, but I, I like to think that 
you know, there's there's some answers to some questions out there, and people know more than what they're saying. I, I, I have resigned to that, that people know more than what they're saying, and we just need someone who this has been eating away at them, they know this, and they were there, they saw this, whatever the case is. I, I firmly believe that. I do believe that, that that person is out there, and we just need that person to come forward and talk. It's that hope that someone will come forward that Kevin Silva clings to now more than anything. It's the right thing to do, but trying to get people to do the right thing today is not easy. For a young kid that maybe made a wrong decision, made a decision to go to a party to hang out with some friends, and he was just maybe something to get into becoming a, a young man. He was just on the verge of it. And he may have made a fatal decision. Maybe the decision he made cost him his life. But what if he didn't? And what if somebody has to answer to the justice system because they did the wrong thing pertaining to my brother? That's the whole problem with no, with this with this case is not knowing. Is it as is it as cut and dry as Kurt went to a party, did something he shouldn't have done, and died, or is it at the other extreme of of the scenario? Somebody took his life. No, why shouldn't we know that? Kevin knows the answers they get may be hard to hear, but he wants answers nonetheless. You know, there was talk that somebody took a hypodermic needle and, and shot air into his blood and killed him because, it, you know, there was talk of that about the previous administration because they knew it wouldn't be found because they didn't look for that back in 1981. Is that true? I don't know. The problem is you got so many different stories. How do you, how do you process that in your brain? You know, you can process when, say, for example, Jessica, when your your parents passed away, they, they died of old age and, and they had a heart attack. You can slowly come to terms with that. How do you come to terms with the fact that your youngest brother is dead and gone now almost 39 years and you still don't know why? That's the hardest part of this whole thing. Not knowing what kind of young man that he would have grown up to be. Knowing that he has four nieces that he never met. My mom and dad had four boys, them four boys. Well, the three boys, Kurt never got a chance. The three boys had, had four girls. He never got to meet him. For Kevin and his family, the truth about what happened to his little brother is really all that matters. We should just know, no matter what the absolute truth of this whole thing is, we should just know. So you, so, so all these years and all this energy has been put into my brother Kurt could be put into somebody else. Or maybe should have already been put into somebody else if we'd have found the answers way back then. Kevin, the only Silva family member left, has faith that the efforts by so many will finally answer the looming question that's remained a mystery for a lifetime. And it's overwhelming that so many want to help him uncover the truth. I'm blown away by that. That's how human be- that's how we should be. It's amazing that people that don't even know me, that don't have one bit of knowledge about the Silva family or my brother Kurt are willing to sit down and take three days out of their life to possibly solve what happened to Kurt Silva. How do you, how do you put that into words? I hope I have enough time to give each one of them a hug. I may not, but I, how do you extend gratitude to a situation like this? How do you put that into words? How do I put into words what I feel in my heart right now? I can't. I just like to get my arms big enough so I can wrap my arms around everybody and go, I love you and thank you. And do it again for another family, please. Because what I'm feeling right now, another family deserves this. 
The chief, however, wants anyone who's thinking about going to the CrowdSolve event to keep something in mind. This is real. This is a real family and real people, which they all are. And, you know, they just got denied the opportunity to find out what happened to their loved one, you know. And we've seen it tragically, you know, teens die and they get, you know, in a car accident or, you know, someone overdoses or, or, or some other tragic event. At least they know what happened to their loved ones and it, it doesn't make it any easier. But it, I can't even imagine what it feels like not knowing what happened to this kid. And they've had to live with this and mom and dad had to take it to their grave. As criminal justice practitioners, we gotta keep in mind that there's victims out there. And that's what we're, that's what we did this for. From a joy, it's why he wanted to go into the law enforcement to begin with. You know, when you ask people, you know, why'd you become a policeman? Or, you know, why do you want to become a policeman? And I want to help other people. I want to make a difference in my community. I want to impact things. I want to make the world a better place. Okay, well, you know, here's an opportunity to make a better place. And, you know, let's take a look at this case here and, and see uh, what we can do. And, you know, it's it, it's more work for us. It's, you know, I... I'm spending a ton of time at home working on this myself, and there's other officers who are doing the same thing. But, you know, um, we believe in something, and we believe that, you know, this family was denied the opportunity to find out the first time. And, you know, I've been the chief here for a little over six years, and, you know, I can't control anything that happened prior to my arrival. But now that I'm here, you know, I've, I've got a say in things, and, and I say that it's time for us to look at this, and... You know, let, let's see if we can give some some justice to this kid and his family and uh, at least try to find out what the heck happened to him. If you have any information, call Cuyahoga County Crime Stoppers or the Newburgh Heights Police Department tip line at 216-386-0024. If you'd like to learn more about CrowdSolve, go to CrimeCon.com. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story right here on True Crime Chronicles.